Well, good morning and welcome to Hope Community Church. Glad you could join us this morning. For those of you joining us online, welcome as well. I do have a book recommendation this week. Uh, the book this week is titled The Faithful Apologist. It is by K. Scott Oliphant. Uh, it is a book about rethinking the role of persuasion and apologetics. It's a good, a short book, a good intro book to apologetics, focusing um, on essentially our confidence in apologetics. That is, it's rooted in God, it's rooted in his word. And then three key things for us to consider, uh, ethos, pathos, and logos, uh, character, feeling, and the word when we engage with people. And so he gives us some good examples and a good perspective on the questions that we ought to be thinking and ought to be asking when people ask us questions about our faith. So again, that's the faithful apologist um, rethinking the role of persuasion and apologetics. Before we begin our message this morning, let's go to our Father in heaven in prayer. Holy Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this morning. Thank you for this moment before us. We ask that you would forgive us our sins as we come to you this morning seeking wisdom, seeking to hear your voice, to hear what you have to say to each and every one of us and to, uh, to us as a church, as a whole. Father, help us to be focused. Help us not to be distracted. Help us to submit ourselves to your teaching, uh, to your spirit. May we be filled with your spirit and may we live accordingly. We ask this, Father, so that we'd be edified, equipped, sanctified in order to glorify you in all that we do. So, Father, we ask these things by the power of the Holy Spirit, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So we are nearing the end of our summer series, Tools of the Faith. So far, we have covered the need to follow Jesus, to know Scripture, to pray, to worship together, to gather together, to make disciples, to live graciously and then last week we spoke about living generously. All things that are necessary for the believer in Christ. All things that on some level require sacrifice and being uncomfortable from time to time. For some it even requires painful moments. Perhaps even a deep strong pain whether it be physical or emotional in nature. So living in a world that is against you. Suffering loss of relationships for the sake of the gospel, suffering a variety of pains and hardships as we faithfully seek to do these things as commanded by Christ, how do we endure? How do we keep going? What's the answer? Well, the answer is hope. We must have hope. But not just any kind of hope. We need the hope of our faith. But what is this hope? What kind of hope is this? And how does this hope Help us in our sufferings. Scripture has much to say about hope, but I want to focus on a particular passage found in the midst of one of the greatest chapters of Scripture, Romans 8. So if you haven't opened up to Romans 8 yet, please open up to Romans 8. If you need a Bible, we have uh, some underneath the seats uh, scattered throughout. The, it will be on the screen. The passage will be on the screen for you. Uh, we will be looking specifically at verses 18 through 25. So let us read those verses, and then let us consider the nature of this hope that we are called to have. Romans 8:18 8, through 25. Paul writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. 
For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience." So what are the sufferings of the present time that Paul starts out here in verse 18? Well, if you zoom out and consider the context and you look at verse 17, you get a hint. In verses 12 through 17, Paul speaks about how we are heirs with Christ because we are led by the Spirit and thus we are sons of God. But you'll notice that in verse 17, he adds a caveat. So let's go ahead and read verse 17. If children... Then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So Paul is saying that if our minds, so if you go back to the start of the chapter, Paul starts with, therefore there's no, now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And then he talks about the life in the spirit. Right? The, if those who set their minds on the flesh, they face death and destruction. That's what awaits them. But the mind that's set on the spirit, life and eternal, uh, eternal life and peace is for them. And so then he talks, if your mind's on the Spirit, the Spirit's in you, then you are an heir of God. You are fellow heirs with Christ. But then at the end of that verse, in verse 17, he says, provided, right? Provided what? That we suffer with him in order that, he may, that we may also be glorified with him. So the implication here is that suffering with Christ is necessary to be glorified with Christ. Now, Paul's not saying that it's because if you suffer with Christ, then you have earned a right to be glorified. No. In fact, because you have been saved with Christ, because Christ has brought you into the kingdom, a mark of that is suffering with him. Those who are in the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Christ, they will suffer for Christ. They will suffer with Christ. Now, this is the suffering specifically that Paul is speaking of in the present time in verse 18. Paul is also, we, well, I should say we, can extend this type of suffering to the general sufferings we experience as well. Right? But even in the midst of those sufferings, we ought to seek to glorify Christ through them. And while we can take that truth of suffering, that all suffering it cannot compare to the glory that awaits us, Paul here in verse 18 is specifically speaking of suffering that is faithfully endured, that is faithfully applied because of obedience to God's word. See, if faith was a two-sided coin, one side would be obedience and the other side would be suffering. If we go back to our first topic of this series, following Christ, and we go back to the first verse of that topic, Mark 8, 34, listen to what Christ says. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So consider this. To deny yourself, that is to deny your own will, to deny your desires and embrace God's will. In other words, don't obey your volition, but obey God's will, obey God's word, o obedience there. And then to take up your cross, that is being willing to enter into, to be marked by suffering as you identify 
publicly with Christ. Just as the world scorned and rejected Christ, as you identify with Christ, you also must be willing to enter into the same suffering. And that Christ, that, that, that suffering that Christ suffered was a suffering that was not brought upon by a fallen consequence of the world. It was brought upon by his obedience. So this is a suffering associated with obedience. And so we must be willing to suffer and be rejected by this world for the sake of Christ. This is the mindset that we are called to have. Paul in Philippians 2.5 writes, Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on in verses 6-11 through 11 in Philippians, talking about how Jesus, how the Son of God took on flesh, emptied himself, became man, uh, became, uh, lived a life in perfect obedience to the point to where that obedience led to what? Death. Death on a cross. And that is the mindset we are to have. See, we often look at verses about suffering, especially suffering in the New Testament, like this one in Romans 8, and think, well, that suffering must be like cancer or some sort of tragedy, a car accident, a disease, or some unfortunate thing that believers and non-believers alike suffer. But in reality, most cases, like here in verse 18, when we see suffering, that suffering is because of us being obedient to the word of God. See, obedience can bring sufferings and hardships in a variety of ways. One way is by the self-discipline and self-control that we need in order to be obedient. It is hard for us with a fallen flesh to not be lazy at times, especially in a society that has blessed us with things to make us lazy. So we tend that way. So a, a small form of suffering is realizing I need to get up 30 minutes earlier in order to read my Bible, or I just need to turn off the TV or put down the phone or, or whatever it may be. And the very smallest, slightest form, and yeah, at the same time, we, we struggle with that, right? Even though it's, it's a small, petty type of suffering, it still is. Second way is as we seek to be, to be obedient and we seek to resist the temptations of sin, it wears on us. It is hard for us. And depending on the nature of the sin, the intensity of the sin or the temptation, we may experience emotional or even a physical pain in the extreme circumstances. A third way, and perhaps the most obvious way, is that as we are obedient to the word of God, as we allow the light of the word to dwell within us, and as we call out the works of the world to be darkness and to be evil for what it is, the world will reject us. And we will be persecuted. We will suffer loss of relationships. People will not like us. We might lose our jobs. We might be passed over for promotions and, and so forth, all for the sake of the gospel because we're seeking to be obedient to the will of God. Now, if you lack obedience to God's word, then what I've just spoken of is going to be a foreign concept to you. But to those who are children of God and those who are obedient to his will, this is not novel. This is not new. This is known and well-experienced. These sufferings, Paul is speaking of specifically, are sufferings that for the most part, they could be avoided if one wanted to live according to the flesh. These sufferings are not, these sufferings, you have a choice, essentially, Paul is saying. If you live, like verses 8, 1 through 11, if you live according to the flesh, these aren't the sufferings you're going to be experienced. But if you live according to the Spirit, as an heir, co-heir of God, co-heir of Christ to God, as sons of God, these are the sufferings of the present time you will experience. So what are these sufferings compared to? Paul says the glory that is to be revealed to us. 
Paul states that our pain, regardless of the depth, regardless of the magnitude, is not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed. Even though Paul says that they're not worth comparing, he is, in essence, comparing the pain and the glory that is to be revealed. By stating simply that the contrast is so great, it's not even worth putting it on a scale. It's not even worth painting you a picture. It's not even worth giving you an illustration. It's almost insulting to try to compare that your, what your pain is compared to the glory that awaits us. Because it's far greater than anything that we can know or have known or can experience in this life. I came across an interesting quote from Jerome, uh, circa late 4th century. Jerome, the one who wrote the uh, Latin Vulgate, uh, commenting on verse 18, he writes, Do you dread poverty? Christ calls the poor blessed. Does toil frighten you? No athlete is crowned by the sweat of his brow. Are you anxious as regards food? Faith fears no famine. Do you dread the bare ground for limbs wasted with fasting? The Lord lies there beside you. Do you recoil from an unwashed head and uncombed hair? Christ is your true head. Does the boundless solitude of the desert terrify you? In the spirit, you may walk always in paradise. Simply turn your thoughts there and you will no more be in the desert. Is your skin rough and scaly because you no longer bathe? He who is once washed in Christ does not need to wash again. To all your objections, the apostle gives the one, this one brief answer. The sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory, which shall come after them, which shall be revealed in us. You are too greedy of enjoyment, my brother, if you wish to rejoice with the world here and to reign with Christ hereafter. Now, what exactly is this glory in the context of Romans 8? It's the glory that is associated with the revealing of the sons of God. In other words, it's the glory to come. It's the glory to come at the end of this age, a glory that even creation itself yearns for, creation itself eagerly waits for. In verses 19 through 22, Paul personifies creation to help us understand what is to come. See, for even creation has suffered the pains of Adam's sin and therefore eagerly awaits the end of days when all things will be reckoned and the realization of the adopted sons of God come to be. In other words, when the adoption process is finalized. Right now, you and I, by the Spirit, we are sealed. We are marked for adoption in verse 14, which we didn't read. But we have been chosen. God has made his claim. But the day of actually moving into God's house is yet to come. And that's the glory that you and I, along with creation, await. And why does creation await our revealing? Why do they groan? Why do they yearn for this? Well, in verse 20, Paul says that it was subjected to futility. A futility that was brought upon them by Adam's sin in Genesis 3. However, note who Paul says subjected creation to futility. God subjected creation. See, creation did not willfully enter into this current state of bondage and decay. Nor did Adam have the power to subject creation to such futility. Only God could and God did in response to Adam's sin. Because Adam was the designated head of creation bearing the image of God. And in his fallen sin, as a consequence, all things that were under Adam's authority was put into subjection by God. And since it was subjected by God, it is only God who can free creation from such bondage. And creation will indeed be freed, but it must wait for the glory of the children of God to be fully revealed. And so creation waits eagerly, 
but not aimlessly, not mindlessly, it waits in hope, in hope of what is to come. Even now, even as creation groans, even as it suffers, and we all know creation is suffering, right? It's all over the news, it's all over social media. We see earthquakes, we see floods. There's one disaster after another. We have extinction of animals, we have the ever-growing presence of harmful plastic in the waters, loss of habitats, natural environments, the breakdown of nutritious food sources, and we could go on and on. And in all of this, creation waits in hope. But it's not only creation that waits in hope amidst all this suffering. As Paul says in verse 23, but we ourselves, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we too wait. What does Paul mean by the first fruits of the Spirit? He's talking about those who have the Spirit dwelling within them. We who have been born again. We who have the Spirit as a down payment within us as a seal. Paul in Ephesians 1, 13, 14 writes in him, Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And then in James 1.18, James writes, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So to have the first fruits of the Spirit, to be the first fruits of the Spirit, is to be born again, to be part of the kingdom. It is us, we who have God in us. So we wait, but as we wait, we groan. We groan as creation also groans. But note, Paul doesn't say that we groan outwardly. This isn't a grumbling. This isn't a complaining about the times. This is an inward groan. A, this isn't a, a groaning that's out of anxiety, a groaning out of, out of doubt or confusion about what's going on. This is a groaning of anticipation. This isn't even an Eeyore kind of groaning where Eeyore is just like, woe is me. That's not the groaning that Paul is talking about. Paul is talking about the groaning that the realization that we recognize this world to be futile, just as creation was subjected to futility and it, and it awaits its release from that futility, we too recognize that this life is vain, it is futile, it is temporary, it is passing. We recognize that it is unholy, it is not pure, it is unrighteous. We recognize the imperfections, the flaws, we recognize this is not what God intended, this is not what God desires. Thus we wait, and we do so with eagerness, for that day. But we don't do so like we're confused. We don't do so like there's no hope. We don't do so questioning if that day is coming. We know that day is coming, so we wait. We groan like a hungry child who's sitting at the dinner table who can smell the food but doesn't know when the parent's going to bring the food to the table. We wait. And we do so without complaining. That day of adoption is what we are waiting for. When Paul speaks of the day of adoption here, he's given us an example of his already but not yet teaching. Because in verse 14, if you look up in chapter 8, in verse 14, he talks about us already being adopted. And in there in verse 14, he talks about us uh, right now, already in the present time, you are an adopted son of God. Thus, you are an heir with Christ. But here in verse 23, he speaks of a time of adoption that is to come. So we have the already but not yet of Paul. This is why we speak of our adoption like a process. And this is the language of salvation in Scripture. right? We have, we have been saved, we are being saved, and there is a day coming when we will be saved, when our salvation will come. 
And on that day, our bodies will be holy and fully redeemed, holy and fully sanctified, holy and fully glorified. That's the day that creation awaits. That's the day that you and I longed for. Now let me caution you, especially for those of you who are young in life or low in life experience. It is a selfish thing to pray that Jesus would delay his return so that you could experience certain life events. And I say this because I myself, along with others I know, used to pray such things. But prayers that say, Jesus, wait to come back until I am able to experience or taste or do this or that is an ignorant and prideful prayer. They come from those who neglect the sufferings of others. They ignore the battles fought by many against their sins. They come from those who have no battles themselves. They ignore the suffering of creation. You need to understand that there's nothing in this life that is worth asking God to delay this day of redemption. Just as Jerome said at the end of his quote that I said earlier, where he wrote, You are too greedy of enjoyment, my brother, my sister, if you wish to rejoice with the world here and to reign with Christ hereafter. In other words, you are too greedy of enjoyment if you wish to party with the devil and then party with Christ when he returns. You can't do that. This hope of the day of redemption to come, this is the hope that characterizes our salvation. For as Paul says in verse 24, we were, it, is, excuse me, it is in this hope that we were saved. We're not saved by this hope, but in this hope we were saved. See, we're not saved by this hope as in because we believe that this day is coming, because we are looking forward to this day to arrive and for Christ to return. It's not by that belief that we are saved, but it is in that belief we were saved. In other words, well, let me back up real quick. Since we're not saved by that, we are saved by what? We're saved by grace, in, by grace, by God, by grace alone, through faith in Christ alone, right? We put our trust, our faith in Jesus Christ, what he's done on the cross, us being sinners, recognizing that, trusting that he has paid the, the penalty for our sin, the payment for our sin, thus we are saved. And since we are saved, we have this hope. We immediately have this hope. It's a hope granted to all who believe. So when Paul says that we are, we are saved, it is in this hope we were saved, he is essentially saying that our salvation is marked. Our salvation is known. Our salvation is distinctive because of this hope that we have. That is, having been adopted into this holy family of God, being sons of God, being heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ, we have entered into this hope of what is to come. A hope for what is to be. It's this hope that carries us along the narrow road. It's the hope that keeps us from straying. It's the hope that motivates us to endure the sufferings necessary to enter through the narrow gate. This is the hope that John Bunyan attempts to capture in his book, Pilgrim's Progress, that carried Christian to this, on the path to the celestial city. It's the hope that comforts us in the midst of our affliction. It's the hope that catches and collects our tears, knowing that this long, hard, difficult road that we are in, it eventually ends sooner or later. And its end is one of pure glory and restoration, one that you and I in no way were able to bring about, but only by the grace and glory of God is it so. It's the hope that calls us from our roots, never to lay them down again, knowing our roots are laid in the eternal, in the unseen. It's the hope that moves us to endure long hours of study, 
so that we may be equipped rightly with the word of God to reach our co-workers, our neighbors, our families, but not only for their sake, but we strive for the sake of the church, knowing that our efforts are not for ourselves, but for one another. Think of the efforts of John Wycliffe and William Tyndale, who gave us the Bible in our language and paid the price, not only with long hours, but with their lives. This is the hope that drove them to their stake. This is the hope that drove them to write the Bible in our English language. Or consider the countless others who sought to call the Roman Catholic Church to repentance from its damnable teachings and pay the ultimate price. It's the hope that calls people from one end of the world to leave all they know and cross oceans to an unknown world with unknown languages, to burn the boats and commit themselves wholly to a holy call. Think of Eric Little, who gave up his Olympic career to serve, suffer, and die for the kingdom of Christ in China. Or consider William Carey and his efforts having left England and going all the way to India. For in this world, there is nothing for us that we are to cling to, but to that which would bring us into eternity. And what would bring us into eternity is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, we don't place our hope in anything but Christ alone. For if we place it in anything here, whether it be loved ones, pastors, the government, technology or medical research, we will be disappointed. We will be left wanting. For everything of this age will disappoint sooner or later. It is futile. It is vain. And everyone, sooner or later in your life, will fail you, will disappoint you. And everyone in this age dies. So you must put your hope in the one who does not fail, and the one who has already conquered death. And in doing so, you will have everlasting life. And this hope, as Paul states in verse 24, is obviously a hope we cannot see. But that does not mean that we are to doubt it. To doubt this hope, to doubt what is to come, to doubt the certainty of it, is to doubt the work of Christ. If we doubt what is to come, we are doubting the very thing that is rooted in. So as much as we trust the work of Christ, we are to trust in this hope of what is to come. And thus we are to patiently and faithfully endure all things as we eagerly await the coming. 2 Corinthians 4, 17, 18, Paul writes, For this light momentary affliction, which in this particular context, Paul is talking about his service to the church as an apostle, as an apostle preaching the gospel. He says, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Such a hope is what produces a life of faithfulness. Consider Hebrews 11 verses 1 through 2. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. And then later in verse 13, after going over a few examples, the author says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Thus, these people of old, they endured their sufferings and tribulations. And not only they, but we of the new covenant, we do the same, though we do it with the Spirit in us. We do it with the resurrection of Christ behind us and our resurrection ahead of us. If the heroes of old could do such great things and endure such great pains without seeing the resurrection, without tasting of the kingdom as we have tasted, what shouldn't we be able to do and endure for the sake of righteousness? 
for the sake of the kingdom of which we are now a part of, for which we are now, that we are now able to taste of. A kingdom that they of old yearned to see, yearned to partake in, yearned to see their Savior. Again, continuing with Hebrews, hear the words of Hebrews eleven thirty nine through 12, 2. So he, he just goes on, he gives us the famous hall of faith passage, lists all these famous men and women of faithfulness, and he says, all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The author then goes on encouraging us not to grow weary and to be mindful of the kingdom that we have received, of the kingdom that we have now entered into, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Though the world may shake, governments may fall, economies will rise and collapse, come and go, things will change no matter what our circumstances are, the kingdom remains and it will always remain. Thus we are to live accordingly in reverence and all, recognizing that our God is a consuming fire. See, hope guided the life of these saints. And, and by saints, I mean fellow believers in Christ, believers in God. They believed in the promise, not knowing it was Christ, but the faith in the promise was credited to them as righteousness. So hope guided the lives. They hoped for what they could not see, but they hoped in it. They trusted. They trusted God. They believed what God told them. They might not have known the details. They might not have known how it was going to flesh out, but they trusted God. They had hope, and thus they lived accordingly because of it, and hope is to guide our lives as well. We willfully enter into moments of suffering with joy, just as Christ did, as we look forward to the day of our adoption. It's not that we seek out suffering, right? We're not called to, to be uh, people who seek out, we're not called to be gluttons for punishment, but we don't run from it, we don't hide from it, nor should we be surprised. We shouldn't be thinking every time suffering enters into our lives necessarily, why God? It's okay to lament, but we shouldn't be surprised. Scripture is clear. You're going to believe in Christ? Prepare for a life of suffering, but rejoice, knowing that you've been found worthy. Rejoice knowing that if you share in his sufferings now, you will share in his glory then. So rejoice. If our Savior, Jesus, the one we are co-heirs with, if he suffered, why would we expect anything different for us? So when denying yourself and taking up your cross to follow Christ, when that seems too hard, too difficult, too heavy, too painful, Consider what awaits those who patiently endure. When you're tired, you're worn out, and you're looking for something to satisfy you, go to his word, remembering, if, remembering that it is there that you will be reminded of this hope that Paul talks about. The world's not going to remind you of the hope. The world's not going to do that. The world's going to give you a false hope. It's going to give you a false assurance. It's going to try to lead you astray. God's word is faithful and true. It will keep you on the straight and narrow. In your prayers, remember that the Holy Spirit is interceding for you now if your mind is on the Spirit. 
The Holy Spirit will give you words to your groanings, give you words to your tears. And the Son, too, is at the right hand of the Father, and he is interceding on your behalf. As he also, he anxiously awaits for the day of adoption, when all of his enemies are put on his footstool, and he reigns over all, and he returns. So gather with your brothers and sisters in Christ who suffer as well. Do not look at your brother in Christ and think, There's no suffering going on in their life. If they are a brother or sister in Christ, they are suffering in some form, in some manner. So gather with them. Receive their encouragement and give them encouragement. As Christ, even on the night of his betrayal, even on the the night and day of his greatest suffering, he encouraged his disciples. And may this hope that we have may lead us to live graciously and generously with one another, but not only with each other, but with our enemies who have right now, they, they think they have hope or they recognize they have no hope in the world, but we have the hope that they need. We do this recognizing this world to be what it is, futile and vain. And remember that we too once were without hope, but by his grace in Christ, we have all the hope that there is ever to be had. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your mercy and grace. Thank you for your patience with us when we forsake this hope, when we are unfaithful, when we so quickly abandon the narrow road. We ask that your mercy and grace would remain upon us, that your spirit would continue to abide in us, continue to call us home, continue to call us back to your word, call call us back to you. So Father, give us confidence to come to you, that when we are in sin, we can go to you seeking repentance, seeking forgiveness, seeking wisdom to to stay away from that. And we ask that you give us the strength, the energy to do so, that you would take our minds, that you would orient them to the eternal hope that we have in your son, Jesus Christ. That, that, That thought, that hope would never leave us, that it would forever be before us, that we would forever meditate on your word day and night so that we can live lives faithfully, regardless of what may come. And as moments of suffering come into our lives, Father, give us a spirit that would uh, enter in those moments joyfully, seeking to glorify you through them so that those who are in the dark would see the light that is within us to see and know the light of your Son and that they too may be brought into the light. And that they too may know the the evil, the sin of darkness of which they walk. Father, help us to be there for one another. Help us to support one another, to encourage one another, to remind one another of this hope. May our speech be seasoned with salt and grace. May your words dwell richly within us so that this hope can spring forth from out of us, Father. Father, we ask that when we do sin, even as we come out of here, and even as being reminded of this hope, that when we do sin, you would be quick to forgive us and that we would be even quicker to turn to you for forgiveness. Give us confidence, knowing that it's there. Give us confidence, knowing that the work of Christ on the cross, it is finished, it is sure, it is certain, it is everlasting. And that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. You have started a work and all of us who call upon the name of your Son, and you will see it to its completion. It is by your effort. And Father, we submit to that effort. Help us to submit to that effort. Help us to have the belief, the hope you call us to have. Father, we ask that you would bless the elements before us as we come to communion, that you'd bless the cup 
and the bread, that they would be gifts of grace to us, reminders of what your son has done, reminders of the hope to come, that as we look back and we see what your son has done, we know that because of what he's done in the past, there's a day of adoption that we in creation eagerly yearn for and wait for, and we ask that he would come quickly, Father, but until he comes, walk with us, be with us, help us to abide in you, help us to walk in faithfulness and holiness so that we would glorify you in all that we do. We ask all these things, Father, by your grace and by the power of the Holy Spirit and in the name and the blood of your Holy Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.